Welcome to episode 105 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Welcome back to another episode. Um, I have to share, my husband put this quote on his desk that I've been thinking about. Is it's, And I asked him if it was because kids kept asking him how many days were left of school, but he said it wasn't that. It says on it, um, don't count the days, make the days count, okay. which is what I'm trying to do with the last few weeks that I have with my students. I saw one of my seniors for the last time today, mm. which is so weird to be saying goodbye to some of my students. But um, one of the things that I'm trying to do to make that make them feel like it counts and make me feel like it counts is bring in their specific interests that they have. Um, And I feel like it gives me this window into kind of like, under the best of conditions, what can they do with their language? So when they're really excited about something, what can they do? When they're, it's a topic that they're so interested in, what what does their language look like under that circumstance? And I had a kid that was, you know, teaching me things about fossils that I didn't know half of the words in the article that I picked. <laughs> and he was, he was the expert on it. And this one was probably my favorite. I had a student that is working on the CH sound and the SH sound, and she's lateralizing both of them. And we're getting close to conversation level. So I was just like, tell me something um, that you like. And I know that she is um, so uh, interested in Harry Styles, the singer, is obsessed <laughs> with him. So mm-hmm. I asked her, was asking her to tell me things about him. And I was like, well, where did he, where was he born? Where did he grow up? And she stops and gives me this look. And I'm like, what? And she's like, I'm not going to be able to say this word. And I, so wow. I went and looked it up because she was just stalled. And I was like, oh, great. He grew up in Worcestershire, England. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I could not have planned that better if I had tried. Here is my oh. student. Can't say SH, can't say CH, Worcestershire, English. So that's God. what we did for the rest of the session was practicing Worcestershire. <laughs> <laughs> and and now she can say it. Now and now I can say it too. It's <laughs> hard <one> for me. <laughs> and now you know where Harry Styles Harry was born. Harry Styles was born, right? Yeah. Exactly. These are these are important uh, facts to know because you I just know. you never know when you're going to have to whip that out and yep. use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's uh, you know in in a similar way, you know, with you saying goodbye to your students you're working with at the end of the school year. You know, I have uh, grad students who are just graduating and, you know, entering the field. So very happy for them and, you know, them leaving and, and starting off on their careers. But it is a little sad, too, because you, you yeah. get used to them and you 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 develop these bonds and then you're not going to see them as often. Or you know, So um, so I understand how those things go um, on the podcast today. We have. Dr. Deborah Campbell and Dr. Howard Goldstein uh, of University of South Florida. Uh, Deborah did her PhD there working with uh, Howard, and they've done some great research looking at telepractice and how speech language pathologists have adapted and pivoted to this treatment model. And so uh, they've they've had some great research out in the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology, and they're going to talk to us about all of the research. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, We at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. 
Doctors Goldstein and Campbell, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourselves a bit more? And then we want to get into some very important topics and related to your research. Sure. Um, I'm Howard Goldstein. I'm an associate dean in the, of research in the College of Behavioral and Community Sciences, which is quite a mouthful, at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And I'm also a professor of communication sciences and disorders. Great. Want to introduce yourself, Deb? Um, my name is Deborah Campbell. I am a practicing speech language pathologist. I own uh, two pediatric therapy clinics in the state of Florida. I completed my doctoral um, work last year under Howard Goldstein. Uh, and through Howard, we published uh, three papers together on telehealth and mm -hmm. are starting projects in the same area. Awesome. That's great. So as we talked about before we got on, that the origin story, just quickly, how, how did you guys get into speech-language pathology? How, what drove you into this field? So I'm going to have to tell you the short version of the story, okay. um, the less colorful version of the story. <laughs> but I, I actually started working with children with severe disabilities when I was in high school. And then when I went to college at UC Santa Barbara, um, I soon started volunteering with some other projects and worked at um, Camarillo State Hospital with children with, with, with autism. So for many years, my focus was on severe disabilities. I wasn't a speech pathology major until my junior year at UC Santa Barbara. And the professor, Bob Cagle, who I work with him and his mm -hmm. uh, doctoral students said, you were always interested in teaching language to children with autism. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you should check out the speech and hearing department. And um, I was aware of the department, but the very first course that you had to take was at eight o'clock in the morning, <laughs> mm -hmm. I think three days a mm -hmm. week. And I had taken a year off and traveled and came back. And it turned out they would moved it to nine o'clock. And I thought, well, I'm much more mature now, nine o'clock, <laughs> perfect. And I started the major at, at that point in time. And it was a great preparation. Um, it was a wonderful undergraduate program. I started to, to develop my clinical skills back then as a, an undergraduate. So I got hooked on the field fairly early, um, and um, but I really wasn't very aware of it until this faculty member moved from psychology into mm -hmm. speech and hearing sciences at that point. And then on to your master's and doctorate and everything else. Mm. I did my master's at University of Washington. Um, I did a master's thesis on something that I learned about my very first ASHA convention, which was in Las Vegas, and I had just started the major. So I went to all these different sessions, and there happened to be one that I went to on miniature linguistic systems. And I thought, you know, that's a really cool way to study language development. So mm -hmm. that actually propelled me through my master's thesis and also my doctoral dissertation that I did it. Peabody College of Vanderbilt University. Mm -hmm. Wow. Deborah, how about you? Sure. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, mine, kind of like Howard, was not a traditional trajectory. Um, as a child, I had a very profound tongue thrust. And uh, my parents waited until I was in fifth grade to kind of do anything about it. So I swore up and down I would never be a speech pathologist. I hated <laughs> <laughs> I remember, gosh, the torture. Of course, I was, I was in fifth grade and I would hide when they would come get me. Um, and I was more interested in hearing, um, in the hearing impaired uh, culture and population. Um, it actually started off at the University of Central Florida <clears throat> going mm -hmm. into ecology. Well, lo and behold, I finished my bachelor's degree and they do away with the program. <laughs> and I was like, well, now what? Uh, so I had applied, um, got accepted to George Washington university, was excited because then I get to go, uh, I was hoping to then, 
um, learn at Gallaudet University and have experiences in that there. Um, shockingly enough, a gentleman who is now my husband, I met right before I graduated and decided to stay in Florida. Uh, but as most people, or maybe some people don't know, with a bachelor's in speech pathology, it's very difficult to find work, or at least it was back in the 90s. So I ended up getting a job in a school system with my communication sciences degree, which happened to me. And I had to practice as a speech pathologist in a field I swore I would never do. <laughs> and I, after one um, semester working at that school, I was in love. I loved everything about it. I learned uh, truly, it was so much more than articulation and speech. The language part, kind of like Howard, I was enraptured in children and how their language develops and how disordered language looks. Um, children with autism, I had very little experience with. I was enamored at their brilliance um, at the same time, their struggles. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely worked with children who had hearing impairments. Um, through college, I took as much sign language as I could. So after that semester, I was like, all right, I'm doing this. I'm going to go be a speech pathologist. <laughs> so uh, I applied to UCF, got in and went and completed my master's degree. Uh, practiced for about six years and decided to open my own practice. Um, it more was because I was frustrated with the um, working for occupational therapists and PTs out of frustration of wanting to do more with my field, but having to explain it to practitioners who don't understand our field. So I right. got my gumption up and opened my own practice, um, had the practice for 20 years. And I always said I wanted to go back and get my doctorate. Mm -hmm. uh, I was always intrigued by research. Um, always enamored by um, when I would read articles and how people would come with the most amazing uh, conclusions after these studies. So I waited till my children were grown. Um, I have one now who is in college, the other one who uh, graduated college. He's a practicing uh, uh, a law clerk for a, a, a federal judge. So at that point, I felt like I was ready to go back. So I then applied and graduated from USF. Um, in August of 2021. Wow, what a journey. <laughs> I mean, that is great. That's great. Even people ask us, like, I didn't want to do this. I, so it, I, I guess it also makes me very hypersensitive to children when I work with them to always make sure that it's fun, to make sure that they love coming to see me. And it's not, I just remember it being miserable as a kid. So it, I, I guess it also drives me that my kids leave with smiles and joy on their face every time they come. It should be something they look forward to. So if there's anything that came out of that, hopefully it made me a better clinician. Sure, sure. And so along this journey, telepractice somehow must have um, jumped out at you. Was that okay. before COVID? Part of that story. Okay. <laughs> so I was on Deborah's committee, but not her, the major professor at that point. And for her comprehensive exam, she did a grant proposal, you know, spelling out potentially years of research in a mm -hmm. totally different area. And of course, it was during COVID. And we, you know, um, she ended up switching to me as her advisor, um, which is another story altogether. <laughs> she knew a lot about telepractice, but, mm -hmm. you know, it sort of took a little push to say, you know, you know enough about this that I think that you could do a series of studies that would culminate in your, your dissertation that would be really important contributions to the field. And I think it's turned out to be the case. So um, I had a little bit to do with it, not because I knew about so much about telepractice, but I knew somebody who really did know, well, you had good insights into that area. So Deborah, what was your first uh, sort of exposure to telepractice? So I had been doing telepractice um, intermittently over the last, you know, I'd say probably about six or seven years prior to doing this research. But at the time, and that being that I'm in pediatrics, it was usually with children, for example, that lived, um, they would travel an hour to two hours to come to my practice because of some different specialties that I have. Um, I'm one of my specialty areas is dyslexia testing and treatment. 
So I would have parents that would travel distances to come to my practice and they were paying out of pocket. And lo and behold, we thought, wow, we don't need to have you travel. Can we do this virtually? Um, and that's kind of how my exposure to telepractice had started uh, mm-hmm. and in doing it, but it only been with very specific cases. And usually it was distance only. That was really the, the reason why um, right. we had closer right before COVID. We had a young boy who has an immune disorder. And so he would end up having to call out a lot. So we had actually been in the process of moving him, trying to find out how do we get him um, using telepractice to receive his services right around the time that COVID started. So, and being a business owner, and as we all know, how that kind of went down in March of 2020, Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, and and Howard knew like during this whole process, he knew I had a whole practice with multiple therapists that worked for me. Um, You know, it was that eye opening of, okay, I've, you know, dabbled in this a little bit. Now we need to make this more, um, we need to make this happen. So something that I had been using quite a while, but not nearly to the extent that we are now, um, we just basically went whole hog and like, okay, we trainings, we, um, you know, had to convince parents. It was a whole, I mean, it was great, basically experience everybody else went through, but I guess I was probably less apprehensive as some because I'd already mm-hmm. done it knew that I could be successful with it. Right. You also seem to be pretty aware of the literature until. Yeah. So that was my other frustration is when this all happened and when we had pivoted, again, we deal with insurance companies for reimbursement. And right. so when we were asking for authorizations and we were getting, you know, reductions or denials from insurance companies um, prior to the um, government saying, hey, um, we're going to cover this. Right. Mm-hmm. So we had, I had to go through the literature and I had to make the argument and say, OK, this is proven to be effective. You should cover this. It should be paid for. Well, guess what I found when I started looking at some of the literature, I was like, I'm having a hard time making mm-hmm. adjustments to some of these insurance companies because there were holes in the literature and in, in many, many areas. And of course I go to Asha and saying, Hey, Asha, you know, I know you got this SIG group and telepractice and, you know, can you help mm-hmm. me? And then Asha kind of being a little bit, not as, um, they were supportive of telehealth, but that little disclaimer of as long as the quality of care is equivalent to in person, right? you know, and so really feeling strongly like, all right, this is an area that is highly effective. And it's one of those things that, you know, intuitively, the research that had been done had been coming to the same conclusions, but we needed much, a, a, a greater breadth of research to really support this. And not just for our own, our own knowledge, but as a way to um, inform legislators, to inform um, organizations such as insurance companies, that this is a viable and reliable method of providing services. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think what you guys have shown is certainly with your own research, just there's more research happening now because of COVID, because people are like waking up to this. And frankly, they had no choice but to wake up and have to deliver services this way. But I think it has sparked uh, more research and people are now kind of changing their perspective, which is what I want to get into in terms of your re- the, the research that you did do. So let's let's jump in in, ter- in terms of the, uh, the two articles that I'm talking about uh, from the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology. Uh, came back, they came out back in the fall, right? And so let's talk about how that uh, that idea with the survey and, and then some of the conclusions, um, how that all came together and, and, and where is this going to go? Do you want to start, Howard? Or do you want me? <laughs> so, you know, actually the, the survey was one big survey, but... Mm-hmm. Um, we had done some other research on measurement development. So we went through a pretty methodical process of developing the, the, the survey. And um, it became large enough so that, you, you know, there were basically two different parts to it that um, Deb, Deb will t- tell you about. Um, 
And we were really interested in actually finding answers to questions that we didn't know the answers to. And a lot of those had to do with, um, you know, the change, the rapid changes in people's perspective mm-hmm. about telehealth and what that would mean for, for the future. And there's actually a third study that just came out um, officially last week that we'll mention towards the end, I think. But um, uh, I think that could t- t- talk a little bit about the distinction between the first um, part of the survey and the second part of the, the survey. Well, and part of what I was looking for in the very first study <clears throat> was we wanted to basically, I felt strongly that it needed to be documented in real time what was happening mm-hmm. with speech pathologists, talking about what they were doing prior to COVID. I mean, we're still in COVID now. I mean, we couldn't, I couldn't have predicted the back back in 2020. Um, but at the time, thinking in real time, we need to be capturing this data of what we are all experiencing for now, for the future, when we look back 20 years from now, you know, where, how, where do we start? So it was really important to me to, in real time, during the very beginning parts of this um, of, of the pandemic of collecting that data. And I wanted to know, okay, who were the people that were providing telepractice prior to? And then we know that right afterwards, sheer panic, everybody has to stay home, we have to do telepractice. But the time went on and some places were allowing there to be live and then time went on. And then we were looking at, well, what are we gonna do a year from now? What are we gonna do five years from now? And I wanted to catch and, and kind of get a glimpse into what was going on with pediatric therapists. We have lots of therapists who are working in schools, therapists like myself who are working at home. My company does a lot with birth to free. So the early steps, um, speech pathologists, they were going into the homes and working with infants and toddlers. And now they're not doing that. They're on computers. Um, we had university personnel um, that were doing the same thing. I mean, what was happening with our university level um, clinics. So I wanted to capture all that information. And I found it really intriguing, of course, how it seemed like everybody, because we all knew we kind of had to do it. So we all did it. But then what I found interesting is as we, in that questionnaire, we were asking, okay, at this point in time, like around October of 2020, okay, is your clinic allowing kids to come live? A lot of people said yes. But because even though you're offering live sessions, are we still doing telehealth, even though the option is to come live. And it was mind blowing how many people are like, well, of course we still are like, this works. This is great. We like, it. um, so, and it wasn't the, you know, the, the pivot during that was initially it was we got to keep everybody self safe. We got to work from home or stay in a clinic where nobody's there, but then given the option where you can go back to your clinic, given the option that a patient can come live, we are still providing telehealth. And then the question became, how did the justification for doing that telepractice change from initially in March to six months later? And what we found was some of the original reasons people were doing telehealth prior to March of 2020 was the reasons they decided to do it six months later. Kind of like what I said, I had a child traveling an hour and a half. Um, then we found that people were saying, hey, there's no reason this mom has to pack up her kid in the car and travel 45 minutes to get therapy when we can just be right on the computer. And so, yeah. So those same reasons started to kind of pop up once we took away the public health emergency aspect Mm -hmm. of it, the same reasons we were doing it before turned out to be a lot of the same reasons people are continuing to do it. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people, it took for you, you recognized it before the pandemic, but I think for a lot of people, it took the pandemic to realize oh, this is viable. I can do it for all of these other reasons, even when there's not a pandemic. Exactly. And what was really intriguing, um, I remember reading, you know, when you write an, uh, an article up, um, I'm always interested as what is the takeaway. And I remember reading a tweet for somebody that kind of threw me that I guess I didn't necessarily, I hadn't thought much about it. But I guess when you're so involved, you don't. And the point that they said was, wait a second, it didn't matter if you were early career, you just graduated from college, or you've been practicing for 40 years, we were getting very similar feedback from all speech pathologists. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like just, you know, I, I, I do have to admit, um, I call myself a tech source sometimes, <laughs> because <laughs> technology eludes me. 
and people my age um, very much. That I, I remember I had a, a therapist retired this past December and the look on her face of the thought of doing telehealth initially was terrible. <laughs> There's all these letters and what do the letters and numbers mean? And I'm confused. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, once we got her on, perfect. And she did spectacular and she was wonderful at it. So again, like you mentioned, rip that bandaid off and it didn't right. matter you were tech savvy or you're tech a source like me, once we figured out how to do it and did it a lot, it became effortless. And now um, it's encouraged. I tell parents, you know, you when we bring in new clients, we have them fill out all our paperwork and we offer them the telehealth as an option, just as an automatic, it's an option for you. Um, mm-hmm. Because longer something that's intimidating. And I'm also intrigued too, because we have had now a giant swath of graduate students. I mean, think about it. The ones going to be graduating August of 2022, their entire college career, they've had telehealth exposure. They didn't have a, cho- they didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. And then now looking at programs, David Ash has sent out a recent survey saying, how much telehealth are we going to continue to allow going into the future? Right. And it, that wasn't even thought about before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved that survey. I gave them... Um... I was like, oh, hold my beer. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about this. (laughs) If we're going to say it's equal, then there should be no limit. In my opinion, if you're going to say it's equal to in-person, then why are you telling them that they can only do this much teletherapy to get their degree? That was exactly my response as well. Thank you. (laughs) And 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 that's exactly it. And and now universities, I mean, Howard, you're at the university. And and I think that they're now looking as they're offering coursework, like they're understanding Mm -hmm. telehealth now needs to be embedded into the coursework, where in that, um, in the Genesis study, we talked about even at the university level prior to COVID, I mean, it was an elective at certain colleges and the percentage of graduate students even had exposure to telehealth. It really depended on where you went to school because it wasn't even, like, true. yeah, it wasn't even on their radar. It wasn't even something they'd even heard of or not. I wouldn't say heard of, but hadn't ever experienced. It was what so like, I think one of the major findings from mm-hmm. that first study had to do with this idea of proficiency because mm-hmm. people's perception of their proficiency of telehealth was so low, except for the few people like you who were using it for, um, you know, the reasons that, that, that you spoke about. But to get proficiency to go from low to high at so quickly was pretty amazing. But mm-hmm. the thing that I think is also interesting for the future is that people are realizing what kinds of applications they need to make it more effective. You know, so they're mm-hmm. like hungry for more. It isn't just that they're doing it. It's like, mm-hmm. how can we do this better? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Not just not just survive, but thrive in it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, it forced my company. We now have um, we have a Google Doc that we have. It's just, it's a shared document between all of my providers, and each of us had our own materials on our own computers that we now have created this huge resource for all of us, mm-hmm. and that was. I would never have thought about prior to this. You know, you had all your, you know, materials you had, or maybe you printed them off your computer, but to think now I'm at home, another therapist might be at home and we can all have shared materials. So I don't, I don't think that we even thought about needing that before, but now it's something that is available to any therapist that works for me. And it's really worked out nicely. You know, a therapist, you know, calls up, Hey, I'm sick today. We end up pivoting them to telehealth and they have a whole world available to them. Sure. Just just don't uh, scan in anything from Super Duper. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> they would make their own materials, right? They would make their own mm-hmm. materials and create yeah. all the you know, wonderful things that they did, PowerPoints that they're making for all of their own kids. And mm-hmm. instead of so as they're doing this for tele for their for their telepractice, they're uploading into this Google Doc. So now when the next therapist comes along, she can share the same information. So it's been really interesting even how Howard had talked about how we're now even expanding all of these materials we ourselves are creating and then able to. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting to think about how the publishers pivoted pretty quickly to providing Mm -hmm. some access to digital Mm -hmm. um, stimuli and things like that for assessments and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and that was needed in, 
almost scary how many um, organizations and places were like, well, we're just not testing anyone because we don't know how to do it through telepractice. And when, especially, I know, Deborah, you were talking about working in early intervention, like, this is a small window, you know, we test kids every six months, because we need to have updates on how they're doing. And to just be like, well, we can't test anybody that was just plain unethical, I think. And it's interesting you said that, because when we created this survey, that was basically became the second study. And that was really a big takeaway from that second study. So when when I created it, I was looking at, at it across, you know, basically trying to collect that data of the proficiency data, who who's feeling comfortable doing telehealth, that was that beginning part of it. Then the second part is, okay, we are doing it. So or, or maybe we're not, as you mentioned, with evaluation. Yeah. Why? What are our concerns? How do we feel about this? And that's where the second study really went more in depth and saying, what do you feel comfortable treating over synchronous communication? What are you not? And the evaluation part was really eye-opening that only half of the people that responded that were doing treatment that were SLPs were not doing evaluations for that exact reason. They're saying, oh, we can't mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. They would do them. They say, but you kind of, ha- I don't know if you should take these results as being valid. We can't really validate them until you come in person. And so they would actually redo testing when the kid came back to school, if they were at home and they were testing them at home because they weren't comfortable that the scores were liable. So I, I, yeah, that came out very strongly in that second study. And so everything kind of connected and led, and that's what led me to get to the third study because all right, why are we not comfortable with doing testing? Okay, then we need to be doing research because we're not, if therapists don't feel like they're comfortable with it, why are we not comfortable? Where are the gaps that are making them say that? So that was really opening that back up to what what still needs to be done. So. So what were the top areas that people were hesitant about treating or assessing? Uh, swallowing was a big one, mm-hmm. I will admit. I can tell you um, that was it. I guess you have to look at swallowing in pediatrics as oral pharyngeal swallowing in contrast to more like an oral feeding aversion. Um, right. So, I, I, in retrospect, I wish I kind of pulled the two apart because I have a feeling if it was a feeding aversion where you're doing like a parent training model and you're trialing mm-hmm. things versus mm-hmm. you have a child who has, you know, oral pharyngeal disorder that could potentially aspirate, they felt very uncomfortable not being able to see the child live. So that was one. Um, sure. Another social pragmatics. There were some big concerns with children that have autism that, you know, they're concerned about their social skills. And it was interesting because it was very different perspectives. Some people felt like these kids are in front of devices all the time. The last thing we want is more devices, right? Putting them in front mm-hmm. of a computer. But then there were other really interesting perspectives the saying, but wait a second. We're in a room with four people and they communicate and they have to stay on screen and keep their face in this little box. So it's encouraging that socialization. So I think, again, it came down to perception. Um, Those are two really big areas that people had concerns about. AAC was the... AAC was another one. Actually, articulation disorder is not necessarily... um, That was another real big one that they were concerned about. And it came down to... Um, being able to judge the quality of the responses mm-hmm. from, the- yeah, which was the subject of the third study. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> that's what you guys looked at with the third study, right? So, notice like everything kind of led into then everything led into the next step, and even the research that I'm doing now, I'm still basing it on information that we got out of the first two studies because it was it was basically guiding to what, what, what are the therapists telling us? It was really important for me to go to the people who were in the trenches, who were actually doing this and saying, what are your concerns? What are the holes that you perceive to be there? What do you feel are as as researchers, what do we need to be doing to support you? And as a practicing clinician, that was a big deal to me. I knew what I, what I needed. I wanted to know what other people needed as well. And so what's the answer? More training? More, what do you think? Um, I think there's a couple different things. I, I The proficiency part, as Howard had mentioned, mm-hmm. is a big, making sure that people have exposure to it. But exposure in kind of a very positive way, um, 
I feel some um, clinicians, when they reported back, some of the things they reported was that kind of being forced to do it. So they were kind of muddling through it, but not really happy about it. Right. And I felt done in a positive way. And somebody modeled it for them or trained them how to do it and gave them really good tools. They tended to be more successful and, and had a better perception about it. I think having more research that supports what we're doing so they can feel comfortable um, in what they're doing. And I think we also have, you know, the, the parent um, and client perspective as well. I, I still have parents where if their child, um, they would rather cancel a session than pivot and do a telehealth session. They just, they they won't even consider it. So perception, it, they just, it's a preconceived notion that this is not going to work or this is not effective. And as much as I'd like to change all minds, I'm, I'm realistic. We, there's some people you just won't, but the fact that we have, um, we're, we're including it in our, in our graduate school work. We're including it in our everyday practices. Um, and hopefully administrators at schools are also starting to recognize this. Um, one thing I brought up um, during my dissertation, a question that was asked of me is in the, in the education perspective, you know, we have kids that are on hospital homebound and you know how hard mm-hmm. it is to try to find teachers. They've worked all day. And now I want you to go do hospital homebound kid after school. Mm-hmm. Guess what? If we could do telehealth with them, you can get these guys some really good care. And they may even be able to get more care, right? Because you're not having to travel there. They have, you, you can provide them all the materials um, over the computer. Um, and you might be able to have more children that are able to receive that service. So I think it's also getting some of the higher ups to think outside the box of we, we get, if we get the research to show it's reliable, and then we know that the people are proficient and comfortable in doing it, then what are all the ways that we can use this so we can be providing care to people that just aren't getting it. I think that you bring up a really important point that there are all these institutional constraints, you know, and we need the research to be able to convince um, various agencies and insurance companies, um, schools, even universities are, you know, Mm -hmm. having a tough time transitioning back, you know, with faculty who never wanted to be involved in distance education, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's like, oh, I get it. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are these conventions and traditions that we need some data to help break down, I think. And I think, too, how um, you guys were talking about the perceptions of people and how that they need a positive experience with telepractice. I And mm-hmm. I read some studies that, you know, did have some negative comments and negative reviews of telepractice as a whole in like a certain district or something like that. So I think the data, too, takes it out of that, you know, that kind of qualitative or the people way people felt about it to also show like here's either here's a large group of qualitative data so you can judge that or to say like with the study on the articulation that here's some like it's not just do you feel whether it was valid or not here's some actual studies for it right absolutely you know but and you collected some data on some of those barriers like around access you know, Absolutely. in terms of broadband access, in terms of um, equipment, computers and iPads or smartphones, mm-hmm. you know, there's still a lot to, to learn about that. But some of, so much of this hesitancy has to do with the fact that there's a digital divide, mm-hmm. you know, along socioeconomic um, variations. So, it, Very true. And and probably Deborah, you, you've seen that. You know, most of uh, most of my families are now connecting using their smartphone. Mm-hmm. You know, and that kind of changes the the type of interaction you're going to have. You know, because they're not really, you know, playing games or whatever. It's kind of hard to do some things when they're looking at a screen that's you know four inches or five inches, whatever it is, versus at a computer screen. Um, so that has you know that's going to continue to change how we deliver these services. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's important that as we do, you know, two things I, I feel strongly about is we do these studies, we have to make sure 
that we are using the equipment that people have. Right. So we sure that as we investigate this, we're looking at what, what's realistic. I happen to work with a large population of low socioeconomic um, clients. And so mm-hmm. you are absolutely right where you they're using the data on a cell phone to be mm-hmm. able to connect to us. Um, we live, I, my um, area where I practice is a rural area. And so, you know, we have kids that they're doing therapy on a school bus because when they get home, they have no signal. So, mm-hmm. so it's, which, and, and during the pandemic, that was the only option we had because if they went home, they had nothing. Um, right. So that part of it is, is something we have to consider is that the, when we're talking about who can benefit from this, make sure that we're not setting up this is reliable and it works as long as you have this device and this, you know, okay, now you've excluded a whole population of people where that's not viable for them. So looking at the equipment and the accessibility aspect of that is, is highly important. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think um, I want to just sort of get some, uh, some of your ideas about where are we going? You know, I think, you know, use the word, pivot. Um, we all pivoted. And I think it, I think this was a, a major pivot for speech language pathology, which is what you guys are talking about in, in your articles. Where do you think all this is going to go? How's it going to affect university training programs? And then uh, looking out five years, 10 years, what do you think? I think our, um, I think our field is going to derive the answers to those questions. I think, again, we have new grads coming out who've had a lot of experience with this. And as long as that continues at the university level and they're comfortable and they're proficient with it, I think they're going to be driving that future as much, you know, we have, you know, clinicians retiring. There's a whole new generation coming behind them. And for them, telehealth is part of, part of doing therapy. It's not something where, You've only ever done it live and now you're doing it. And now you're at a crossroads of which way do I prefer to do it? All one, all the other, a hybrid. I have people that apply for positions at my company and their stipulation is I would love to work for you. My stipulation is I get to work from home. We have, you know, we're a highly female driven field. Women would love mm-hmm. the option to be able to work from home and raise their children and, or, you know, have a schedule that's more conducive to being a mom. So I think that the future is open to this to continue and continue to be more prolific than I think that um, people realize when the the safety as far as the pandemic aspect of this, hopefully by grace of God weather, that's still going to remain. I don't think, I think after people have worked from home and moms got to be with their children and have that time, I think it's hard to get them to say that they want to go back especially if the argument can be made that this is equivalent, why should you have to? Right. Right. And I, um, I had a kid sick home this week and I was like, just thinking about the fact that my students and me end up getting more therapy this way because I could be like, okay, I'm, she might be in the background. I'm going to get her down for a nap. So you guys know that she's there and I didn't have to call in sick to work. Everybody got their therapy they needed. She was okay. I was okay. And I think, you know, that there's so many instances where this is going to continue to be something that we use. And I, wholeheartedly agree with you that it has to be just another thing that's part of your repertoire for every therapist. Yep. And I think the access to specialists is another really big one. As I mentioned, Mm -hmm. I'm in a rural area. It just happens to be where I'm located. But the people that want my specialty services are willing to travel for it. Well, now they have access to me without having to basically end their whole life just to travel to to get to me. And I have children. um, I had a, uh, a child that I was bilingual and disfluent, which was an area I was not uh, proficient in. So I found a provider who was willing to do telehealth fluency sessions with this child because there was nobody in my area who had that expertise. So what a wonderful opportunity for him to have somebody with those credentials and able to do it because he had access. I mean, the access component to it, why would we ever cut? Why would we stop that? Why? Again, the, the pandemic opened our eyes to things that probably should have been happening for a very long time that, again, we kind of do what we're comfortable with, what we know. Well, now guess what we know and guess what we're comfortable with. 
So I think the future can be very bright. Um, the only thing I could see putting a, a kink into this is if the people, as Howard mentioned at the universities or the people that are in charge decide to rip the rug out from under us and say, well, we're not going to cover this from an insurance standpoint, or we decided we're not going to train our graduate students in this area. Those would really be the barriers that I think that would, um, that could really prevent the future for telepractice. Well, I think that there are still lots of potential myths, if not, you know, beliefs out there, you know, and I think a good example is that, um, at all different levels, including the university level to young children, that something will be missing, will be missed in terms of social emotional development, right? Mm -hmm. Do we really know that that's the case? I mean, we know that there's culture change that's going on constantly, that, you know, we have our various generations that are mm -hmm. dealing with changes in our digital lifestyles and um, you know, that that's an ongoing thing, you know, but the assumption that there are these detrimental effects on social emotional development. I don't know that we know that. And the reason I don't know that is because of your third study, you know, where the assumption was that we could not do make, you know, reliable judgments around our tick therapy or um, sound production assessment using telehealth. So you might as well talk a little bit about that because that was really an important finding that you found that that wasn't really true. Right. So when we had done the evolution study, that articulation piece was a really big one that popped up and therapists saying, I am not comfortable evaluating speech skills such as articulation, phonological processes, or a child with apraxia or dysarthria over telehealth, that I am not going to have reliable results if I do this without doing it live. So the argument then had to be made and say, okay, well, let's test that theory. So the way we designed the third study was we had a speech pathologist scoring the child's um, result, the results of their evaluation in person. Then we had two people who were scoring it simultaneously all at the same time. And they were on camera. One of them had headphones and one of them was just using the devices, um, speaker and microphone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We want to say, okay, is this, is what we're concerned about? Is it, is it a myth or is it actually real? And we tested, um, I think it was 39 children. Um, and consistently we were, and, and they were ranged from typically developing to children that had pretty profound speech disorders. Um, and they could score them and their results were reliable that, which was, and, and it was kind of intriguing because I was actively part of that study. And I remember um, since I was in the sessions doing some of the testing or I observed when the therapists were doing it and putting these scores in and just looking, going, this is so cool that we all came up with the same answer. It was really kind of cool. And the ones that I remembered that we would miss um, were kind of ones that I struggle with in person. So an example would be like a kid would go cup, but they would see their lips closed, right? But would they go cup? So some right. therapists would score that as wrong because they didn't hear it. And other ones would mm -hmm. score it as right because they saw the lips close. Well, I see that what was interesting was those same, that, that happens in person as well. That mm -hmm. some want to hear that sound and some of them will go, okay, I, I saw the lips close. I think I heard it and they would mark it. Or they would have what we ended up doing is having the child repeat it and say, can you repeat it? And the kid will go, <laughs> they would be obnoxious. <laughs> there. Um, right. So that was, it was interesting that the ones that we were already um, probably going to have a child repeat or have a difficulty with in person, it was similar on telehealth. Um, you know, when kids are doing sounds that sometimes they're just not strong, where like a G or a K, which is in the back, they're hard to see in person. Guess what? They're hard to see on camera. Um, and the same thing with different, um, another one were L's because again, you have a hard time seeing it. So the ones where maybe there was a mismatch, what was interesting was sometimes, you know, the two telehealth people would mark it the same way and the live person marked it different, or you'd have a live and a telehealth, but a not telehealth person marked it different, but they were very specific sounds that that would show up with. But yet the classifications, if they had a severe speech disorder, Everybody figured out they had a severe speech disorder. If they were moderate, they, they were basically coming to the same 
conclusions. And, mm-hmm. and then the other part of that was also making it very clear, and we all agree to this, that a test has its purpose and function. But if a child is having speech errors, we're going to be concerned and we're going to do treatment with them. So if you're noticing something, you're going to then say, okay, this child has difficulty with their speech. We should probably do something about it. So if I have one answer different than yours, but yet the child's mis- misarticulating an R. So one time you got it right and I maybe scored it wrong, but in the whole mm-hmm. thing, we all notice there's an R error. We're going to end up qualifying that child to need services. Right. I think, um, and I've seen this in studies too, one of the advantages it has too is having a easily having a really high quality video available too. If you're doing something like Zoom, you know, I've done audio recordings for all of my um, in-person articulation exams. But like you said, with that P, you wouldn't have caught that with an audio only. And so having that to go back to too, that is this like really, you know, relatively close to the face and um, a high high quality. If you're using Zoom, it's really easy. It's integrated and everything to do, I think can sometimes even make it more reliable than it would be if we were just doing it in person. Absolutely. One of the good things about the Goldman Fristo is that Um, We follow the instructions by the manual explicitly, but it's a very forgiving test in terms of being able to ask children to repeat and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, give them multiple attempts. Other tests are not so lenient, which will be the fourth study, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that focuses more on the administration side instead of Mm -hmm. the scoring side. Right. The Goldman, I mean, that, but what I find interesting about that, Howard, is when we go back to that evolution study, the one they were most concerned about was a speech one, but yet thinking about our articulation test of the Goldman Fristo, kind of a gold standard that we give, it gives you so many opportunities to score the child's speech. So what a great thing by using a, a computer to do that with, because if you're not sure, guess what? Have them say it again. Right. So you have multiple opportunities to score it. Mm. And the last test where they seemed less concerned about are less forgiving and those we seemed fine with. So it kind of goes back to that, you know, we had um, preconceived notions about things, but is the research going to show us the same, you know, but did we have those notions based on actual real data that justified how we felt? And so that evolution, the second study that we, that was published really got into that. What is actually proven versus what do we just think and believe? And so it circles back to that need for this research to be able to say, hey, you guys, this is a myth or this might be what you think, but the data doesn't show that. See, that would be a good ASHA presentation. The, <laughs> you know, what are the myths that are out there? You know, right. this is what people are kind of believing, but this is what the research actually shows. Right. So that'd be really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and we hear that, and the thing is, it's, it's a thing in speech pathology all the time. We hear myths with all kinds of things. You know, the parent that has a late-talking two-year-old, and they're like, I'm going to put him in daycare because my friend said <laughs> I talk for him, and if I put him in daycare, I'll talk better. <laughs> we're like, where'd you get that from? Oh, and so again, it's just people believe something because, and, and it's not true. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I agree with, and what we do, especially in with this um modality that we're using to provide care, there is just, it's rampant. And we have to be able to be, to support real information and real um, data supported conclusions. So that way we can hopefully get more, as Howard talked about, getting the people who make the broad decisions, make the right decisions based on the evidence that's out there. Yeah. It wasn't like we did the study to dispel a myth. We really thought that live would be the best and that mm-hmm. the enhanced um, telehealth would be better than the, you know, more common telehealth. It just turned out not to be the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was kind of cool because what we did with the kids, the kids wore the headphones with the microphone mm-hmm. and the therapist, when they were scoring the test, they didn't know if they were the one plugged into the device where the kids' headphones were getting a direct feed or if they were the one getting it by air. So when they were scoring, they didn't know the difference. So it was Mm -hmm. kind of intriguing because I remember finishing the studies and we were, you know, we're such children. Did I have the headphones or not have the headphones? (laughs) No. And sometimes I was like, really? They weren't wearing headphones? 
like I wasn't with the headphone because I could hear everything the child said. I was really shocked at our technology these days, how good some of that equipment is and the quality of some of that equipment. Um, and the iPads that we used for the study, they weren't, they weren't like the newest of new. They were, you know, basic iPads that most parents typically buy. Um, and they worked great at scoring. So that was encouraging knowing that our parents are using some of their own devices. They may not, you know, some of our lower socioeconomic might have two generations behind that they purchased because they're less expensive. Guess what? They're still great quality. Right. So you, you have like uh, the next four or five studies already outlined, ready to go. <laughs> I wouldn't say that uh, maybe Deb does, but it, I think part of it is sort of following the data, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what issues seem to be the ones that come to the surface. Absolutely. And I think it helps because, I mean, Howard and I have talked about this since I am practicing and I have clinicians that work with me, you know, we'll, we'll have meetings and things will come up. And I was like, oh, you know, I, that's a great idea. And right, jot that down because there, there are things that will come up and we're still, I mean, I would say at my company between the two clinics, we're about 50% online and 50% live. So mm -hmm. we are experiencing this and still, I mean, it's, it's constantly evolving data. It's constantly evolving, um, being learning about this and what are new things that need to be researched and studied or something will come up. I'll go to the literature to try to answer a question. Somebody asked me doesn't exist. So it kind of keeps us leading us down that path. So Todd, you have, yes. you mentioned earlier that probably a majority of your clients are using smartphones, you know? So mm -hmm. do you think that that's another area where we think that this is going to be a major hindrance to therapy where it might not be? I mean, that might be a whole other, um, you know, program of research. Sure. Yeah. I am seeing more and more families. Um, I think even when they have limited access to technology, most do have a smartphone at a very minimum. And uh, and then sometimes it's it's kind of strange in that I'll connect to a family. I can tell they're you know looking at their phone, but they have a computer sitting there <laughs> or a tablet, you know, but it's just easier for them to do it on their phone. And it's like, well, let's go to the computer, you know, let's just change this around. I think for the older kids and adults, depending on what type of therapy you're doing, it could impact, obviously, the activities that you're going to do. You know, for a lot of my families, they, they're in that birth to three range, and I'm doing a lot of parent coaching. So for me, as long as I can see the parent working with their, their child, uh, I'm okay. So it doesn't affect that too much. Um, but as you know, certainly those older kids, when you're just working with the child and they're on, they're looking at a little smartphone trying to interact with some activity, it doesn't work so well. Right, writing. So we do a lot with children that have um, learning disabilities um, that are language learning disabled, and when we're trying to do writing, um, them trying to you know type with the little keyboard, <laughs> right? <laughs> Run as time kind of is an issue. Yeah, they're all like, I use a chat box. Because, you know, they're working and I'm like, oh, you're on your phone. Okay. Because it's just a teeny tiny screen. Yeah. So that right. is one. Or when I'm trying to read something and I can see them trying to blow it up because they can't read the. <laughs> it's so, on your side and you have to be the one yeah, <laughs> to exactly. large it. Yeah. Right. I think it's huge. Uh, yeah. So I, I agree with you. And I, and um, depend again. So you have a device that may be appropriate for some types of treatment. And in other types of treatment, it might not be conducive. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. were looking, they're starting to talk about what would be an appropriate device size. If I'm going to do X, Y, Z treatment, what's an appropriate, mm -hmm. not even device size, screen size. I mean, I've seen some cell phones that are gigantic. Um, mm -hmm. Knowing that, um, you know, an iPad mini, mini versus a giant cell phone versus a traditional iPad screen size um, might influence our ability to do certain types of practice over others. Right. right. I tell you what's really fun is 
working with graduate students and they're planning all these sessions and they are assuming that the the child or the parent is going to be looking at a big computer screen and then they start their session and they realize they're looking on their phone. It's so fun watching those grad students trying to figure out what to do next. That's <laughs> pouring off them. That's right. Yeah, they're sweating like everything I've planned I can't do now because I can't yep. you know, show this, you know, website and I can't show this and I can't do this activity. Todd, that was me last week. <laughs> <laughs> You're making that whole proficiency aspect. Okay, so that happened. What do you do? What are right. you going to do? Are you exactly. just going to go session over? Nope. You're you're no. going to pick. You're going to figure out. Okay, you now have this. What do I need to do next? And That's I right. think our graduate students, it's no different. When I bring the toddler in and their session, and they're all prepped, and the kid throws himself on the ground, mm-hmm. and I go, "All right, kid, what are you going to do now?" And the poor graduate's like, "I don't know. They're crying." Um, <laughs> And that's, and that's what I tell them. I just, what you said, I said, you know, you could, you could have planned an in-person session, you know, and had all these wonderful activities and nothing worked. Yep. So what are you going to do? So you gotta, you gotta learn to, to, to pivot (laughs) our favorite word and be flexible in the moment and figure, figure it out. I mean, I coach them and help them, but you know, for the first five minutes they're, you know, they're sweating and, and trying to, you know, (laughs) think of something to say. You know, but we're living through this generational change, you know, where broadband is going to be more accessible, you know, thanks to things like an infrastructure bill and, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. devices may be more commonplace to, you know, hand out or get donations or whatever. So the the digital divide may be getting less. Let's hope. And schools are kids iPads to use instead of textbooks. They found that it was more cost effective, you know, give them an iPad with all their textbooks on it. So mm-hmm. they actually, a lot of students are even getting um, access to devices that they wouldn't other, otherwise not have. And they're right. able to, they bring them home. So now they have access to more um, quality devices that they can use for other things, such as getting their own therapy services. Yeah. So that right. would be- you, know, you bring up a really interesting point I never thought of before. It is so expensive to print these big volumes Mm -hmm. and it's probably cheaper you know to actually put these download onto a device right Right. Uh and then for a school district they're going to be out of date in you know like sometimes less than five years right and so then they have to reinvest all that money instead of just investing it in a device that will always have the most up-to-date information even my grad students are saying, is there, you know, electronic version of this textbook? Right. You know, they don't want to go buy the, you know, the hard copy because it's, you know, they're too expensive. Can they rent the digital version? Yeah, yeah I hate when those big books hit you in the head when you're sleeping, <laughs> before you, when you fall asleep reading in bed. That's true. That's true. Or, or when you're moving like Todd and your wife counts uh, 65 boxes of books. True story. <laughs> that was after I'd already unpacked some boxes already. <laughs> well, guys, it's been great uh, hearing more about the research and what you guys are doing. And uh, I hope that as you continue to do more research, you'll come back and join us and, and update us on what's happening. Absolutely. So yeah, thank you so much for inviting us. This was a lot of fun. Well, how can people reach out to you if they want to be in touch? Um, through USF. I'm hgoldstein at usf.edu. And okay. I am R. Campbell, one, followed by the number one. So Dr. Campbell one at usf.edu. That's awesome. Well, thank you again, guys. And, and good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. I want to thank Drs. Deborah Campbell and Howard Goldstein, both affiliated with the University of South Florida. As you heard, Deborah has her own private practice in that area. And of course, Dr. Goldstein has been at uh, USF for quite a while and is quite well known in the field. I think this research that they've done has been is really, really important. And I think they're sending that message that we're in a, a new paradigm in terms of how we want to go forward and how the profession of speech language pathology is going to move forward. And that's going to be 
with telepractice. You know, this is going to be more and more of a standard of care as we go forward. And that's something that uh, certainly Kim and I have, have talked about in the past and think that it's certainly true. So thank you again, Deborah and Howard, for being with us on the podcast. And we wish you continued success with all of the research that I hope you continue to do. And thank you guys for joining us on the podcast. If you don't mind, leave us a five-star review. That always helps us to attract those new listeners and new subscribers. And with that, until next week, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.